Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we're getting downright cozy with Davey Fogarty from The Udi, the wearable blanket brand that reported earnings of over $400 million earlier this year. Davey is a born entrepreneur dedicated to constantly learning and expanding from e-commerce into both SaaS and media. Settle in for some deep insights on hiring your own replacement and how a proper merchandising hire helped save Davey over $50 million this year, why your product and the trend it's based on matters more than than any other part of your business, as well as Davy's biggest mistake and why catching up on retail could get the Udi a lot closer to a billion in 2023. Get comfy. You're not going to want to miss this one. On with the show. Everyone wants good growth, but I do think there is a narrative where you grow too fast and it causes huge issues. There's brands out there where it just all gets away from them and it collapses. If you're not focused on building the best possible brand, it can cause issues. So we luckily managed it because we have amazing people working some pretty serious hours to achieve what we've achieved. It's all just about getting the right people and process in that order, people first and then process. There's a lot of talented people in our industry and I think because of our product and our timing, we have excelled past a lot of very, very smart people. So feel blessed and appreciative for that as well. In 2023, say goodbye to operational constraints and skewed demand predictions. Printful Enterprise is here to take all of that off your plate with white-label on-demand production. Reach your global customer base with more cost efficiency than ever and offer them a wide range of premium quality products from apparel to home decor. Printful will fulfill pack and ship orders all under your brand. Team up with a player who will always be dedicated to your growth. Team up with Printful Enterprise. We did at D2C and we've never looked back. Learn more at printful.com slash enterprise. That's printful.com slash enterprise. Join the team. Davey, welcome to the D2C podcast. I'm extremely excited to have the founder of the Udi here. How you doing? Going good, mate. Going good. Just went for a walk on the beach and yeah, it should be a good day. I'm ready for Christmas. I was just saying we're in the opposite side of things here. We just had two feet of snow and I've just been tobogganing and, uh, and my daughter is just losing her mind right now at, at having a full snow day. But the roads are totally closed down. The whole city shuts down when it snows this much. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's 31 degrees here. So I was down the beach just before. So oh, crazy, lovely. crazy opposites. Why don't you just start? I think a lot of people know you're really prevalent on social media. I think a lot of people know your story. But just start by giving uh, me the, your marketer's hero's journey with, with your brands. Yeah, so started with Calming Blankets, which was Australia's leading weighted blanket, then went into the Udi, which is also quite a large brand now, a global comfort wear brand um, specializing in wearable blankets. I've got a couple of other smaller brands as well, um, but they Oh, and also um, Outdoor Play as well, which is an acquisition that we made in the States, uh, which is sells outdoor water sports equipment, uh, one of the biggest, uh, aside from obviously REI and backcountry over there. So yeah, they're the kind of the main brands that I focus on. I also have software called Trend Rocket, which finds product trends and, you know, helps source product ideas as well. So I'm slowly kind of getting into uh, the software as a service, considering um, the turmoils we had last year, I realized that recurring revenue is pretty pretty darn important and uh, e-commerce has has its challenges as well. Not completely giving up on it, but definitely, you know, looking elsewhere and trying to diversify a little bit. 
Very smart. Yeah. So the Udi really rose to massive success. You know, I think you, you started it before 2020, but I bet it really took off during the pandemic. Was that, was that a big factor? Like people just being at home, wanting to be cozy. Was that a big reason for the Udi's takeoff? Yeah, it was definitely showing a, a decent amount of traction before that, but it 10xed during COVID like a lot of businesses did. I think, uh, you know, I have a furniture business as well. Um, and that, you know, showed similar growth and that was a four-year-old business at that point. So, um, yeah, it definitely lended itself to COVID and, um, and just the e-commerce industry as a whole, as everyone knows that's listening, just went absolutely crazy. You came out on a TikTok earlier this year, I was just reading in The Guardian, about the growth of the Udi. You, you just sort of stated a little bit about the revenue, $400 million since launching the brand. What can you say about the growth that you've had at Udi? It's just nuts. It's it's uh, It comes with its challenges. So, you know, everyone wants good growth, but I do think there is there is a narrative where you grow too fast and it causes huge issues. So, for example, there's brands out there that, you know, you look at their trust pilot and we could have been one of these where it just all gets away from them and it collapses or they have huge problems within their industry, uh, within their products, like things like compliance, all of those kind of random things that if you're not focused on on building the best possible brand, um, it can it can cause issues. So yeah, it's we we luckily managed it because we had amazing people and uh, we were you know obviously working some pretty serious hours to achieve what we've achieved. But it's all just about getting the right people and process in in that order: people first and then process. And um, but you know I feel very blessed as well. I feel very lucky. A lot of people look at what we do, and uh, I, I think that there's a lot of talented people in our industry. And I think that you know because of our product and our timing, um, we have excelled past a lot of very very smart people. So you know feel blessed and appreciative for that as well. I think product selection uh, it's it's the factor that sort of makes everything else more or less successful, essentially. How do you think about product selection and how did you settle on the products that you've been able to scale? Yeah, so I think product is the ultimate form of, of leverage. I think that's why SaaS is so appealing because the product is so iterative and you can get real-time data around it. You know, if I'm going to tweak an Udi, it's very hard for me to measure retention based on those actions as well as, you know, um, how much money it makes makes the business as well. So I think product, when we were launching on all marketing channels and attempting all kind of different hires, like internalizing CRO at a very early stage, those kind of things, it it, it always worked. Um, And that's, that's because of our product being such a great form of leverage. So I think it's the most important step. One of the hardest parts is when you're you're launching a brand and you don't know if the product is in the right stage to be scaled. So are people you know brand aware, solution aware, or do you ha- is there a big education piece? Because if people are already brand aware, maybe it's not your brand and uh, the product's been around for a while and you're getting bad results, uh, especially on paid marketing, the chances are is that the trend might have been fatigued by now or the advertising ecosystem just can't support you. So I highly recommend not launching those products and really trying to find uh, products that maybe like if there is an education piece, we'll have a tipping point and, and we'll really get mass market adoption. So I think that that's, what you're kind of looking for, I think, when it comes down to e-commerce, we've obviously got logistical 
issues. Um, we're never going to be the cheapest option because we've always got courier costs. Um, so all of the department stores uh, will, unless you can create a brand that forces them to stock you, um, will always come out with a cheaper option. So I think Blendjet's a good example of that. They've got patents on their product, uh, a great product. And they were, you know, stocked through all the major retailers rather than the retailers just knocking them off, which is something that we didn't achieve in the early stage. So getting a form of uniqueness, trying to differentiate that so you can um, get these channels to accept you as well is is really important as well. And then, you know, margin, you need the contribution margin to create the brand um, by spending money on advertising. So making sure it's high margin and you can only do that if the department stores haven't already launched a product. So it's all about trend timing and um, that's kind of why I've been building software to try to map out all of these trends across the globe and where there is opportunities because I think trends are very regional as well. Um, so if one trend has tipped in it's another region and it's not tipped in a similar region with similar behaviours and beliefs, then it's only a matter of time and you can kind of capitalise on that opportunity. Specifically with the Udi, what, what would you say makes it a dream product in order to, to, to have scaled this high to nearly half a, half a billion? Yeah, I think the, the mass market appeal, you know, people say niche down, but you're not going to get a business going that quickly if it is a really niche product. Um, so it's mass market appeal. It's logistically very easy because it's one size fits all. It has a visual element where you can kind of put it over your knees. It solves a um, kind of a fun problem as well. One of the main things that a lot of people don't think about with these kind of products is the, the viral coefficient. So how many people are actually talking about the product um, and virality can be misinterpreted as, you know, this is viral on Instagram, you know, they're posting photos on Instagram, but that's not where the real penetration is. It's like through iMessage, it's through people like Snapchatting each other. Like that's the, that's where the viral spreads. Um, and there's also kind of the subtlety as well, you know, a friend answers the door and they're wearing the hoodie, um, th those kind of things. So I think that there's a great book, How Things Catch On, and I, th uh, I think it's called Contagious. Um, and it talks about, you know, visibility is one of the main things that creates virality as well. And, and the Udi is just a very visible product. In Australia, that people are always, you know, walking down the, the street, wearing them, going to, to Hungry Jack's and Burger King and whatnot. So plenty of virality there. It's a lot of visual real estate. I remember it was one of my first podcasts. I was talking with Chris Mead from CrossNet, and he was just talking about how his main marketing method or in the early days was just having people playing the game and people, you know, if you see it's something that you don't know or you haven't seen before, and it's especially if it's interesting or, or loud or bright, you know, you're just, you're that much more likely to comment, to ask where it came from, what's going on with that. And that's got to be a huge part of, of the success of the product, I think. Definitely. I think it needs to be novel and visual to make these digital platforms absorb them through the video advertising as well. So I think that um, if it's commoditized and boring, it's probably not going to work, especially on Facebook. And then you've also got that ability to print whatever you want on it. So you've got avocado lovers, you've got golden retriever, you've got, you got vampire lovers. There's like, there's no end to the visual real estate that you can kind of use as marketing on the actual product. What's been the most successful line of the Udi? Yeah, I think it's probably... It would either be the basic colors or the avocado and toast. The avocado and toast did really, really well. Um, it was not many people, you know, were willing to print an avocado and toast on their clothing. So I think it was just a bit novel in that sense as well. Um, and the, the fitness junkies, uh, uh, vegetarians, they all love it. It's that kind of um, demographic. 
Have there been any that just bombed? Have there been any, like you just put something on it, you're like, ooh, should not have put Gilbert Gottfried on one of these. It's funny, it's like, uh, it's the lure of comparison. Like for most businesses, it probably doesn't feel like, the Udi's, no, I, I don't think anything has bombed because I feel like when the way that Facebook works, you can kind of put it on and the most diehard horse lover will love like the design no matter what it is. Um, but we have, we've have some, you know, licenses that were maybe too small um, or we just miss, miss the demographic, like um, the Frozen and Moana, like the massive movies, but probably stuffed up the designs, went too wide on them as well. So that's a lesson. But we've had, when, when we're talking about what bombs, I think we were naive to how strong our brand was in that it wasn't as strong to go cross category. So when you, and that that's what's bombed, you know, certain different categories that we've launched into have just absolutely stunk it up. So I think a lot of brands can, can relate to that. Um, so we're realizing now that, you know, we need to apply a methodology around making it, you know, differentiated and making sure that the, there is no competitors in that kind of category itself, that we can own that category as well and, and sticking to our kind of because uh, it's it's very hard to go up against people like Zara and stuff like that that are always ahead of the trends, even in pyjamas and comfort wear. So we, we, we need to kind of stay away from that. But we also still need to enter more commoditized, less trending spaces that will evaporate, you know, in two, three years as well. So it's kind of this fine line of finding uh, a cyclical business that you can kind of repeat and grow, but then also at the same time, um, yeah, not not being boring as well. Do you offer the ability to customize Udi's? Has that ever, ever been on the roadmap? Yeah, we've, we're having a look at it now. I think it is a bit of a risk to our business. You know, when we do SWOT analysis, I think um, a couple of people are offering them. The problem is logistically, it's very hard for these print-on-demands to get a product of our quality because um, the fabric is so expensive. Like we have a really, really high GSM and it, it ends up to be like three kilograms, four kilograms volumetric weight with, with the Udi, um, even when it's like vacuum sealed. So they're always going to kind of struggle to get a competitive price at a good quality. And that's what we're struggling with as well. Like, uh, do we need to drop the quality of our product to facilitate that demand of the customers? But I think it's really exciting with, you know, AI image generation as well and, and the um, movements there. I think uh, we could quite easily enable people to, with the prompts and and to cr- customise their own audience. And, and I think that that will change the print-on-demand industry as well. AI is going to change everything. And it's, I think this is, I'm, I'm asking every person who comes on the podcast, like what, are there any ways that you're using AI in your business already? And, or, and besides, I think this is a great, great concept, but any, any ways that you're using it already? No, I, I'm, I'm very cognizant of it. I think um, the value is going to be in these data sets, like these unique data sets. So um, people like Reddit and Facebook, they're going to be in the best opportunity to create them for us. But you know, I'm also looking at how I can create those data sets as well and um, possibly model things. So looking at platforms where there's lots of usage forums and, and whatnot. And then uh, I'm, not, I'm not currently running anything. I think um, within six months, though, I will be, I think, both for YouTube research and also uh, product research, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of innovation there. So I think for advertising optimization, I am kind of a little bit skeptical of like where it's going to go because I invested in an AI 
optimization for creative and they got into YC, but YC was basically like, because it's an amazing team and they were basically like, we don't invest in these kind of AI um, marketing optimizations because it becomes commoditized and everyone can use it and therefore the platforms, it it's just becomes moot. Like it just doesn't help anyone because everyone's got it. So they, they kind of seen, they've saw a ceiling around 20 million valuation for those kind of things, which YC is looking for those more moonshot valuations. So I thought that that was kind of interesting and reframed how I think it's Magic DX or what I can't actually remember the, the optimizing tool there. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical on, on when that will roll out and if there will be proprietary software for certain things, like maybe we have a proprietary software that we license um, that nobody can have, which would be pretty pretty cool. I just saw Andrew Huberman launched the trained AI based on his you know, body hacking podcast or whatever. And now they've created like a chat bot that's specifically for like all the data that was in that podcast. And it really, it makes me think there's a play for us to, you know, get the the transcripts of all these great interviews I've done with these founders and have, you know, create something potentially for people that are like looking to get into e-commerce that might have questions or whatever that they could kind of query the database. That's, that's something I'm thinking about. And then just copywriting. Copywriting is crazy. Like the way I've seen, I, I follow all these copywriters on different social media platforms and they're the way that they're using it for research, like, give me 10 headlines for someone that has this objection about this product or whatever. And, and they're not like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't trust it to write anything maybe whole cloth right now, because I've also seen that almost every, you can detect that it's AI. You can run anything that you write in AI through like an AI detector, and it'll give you like a 99% sure that this is written by AI. So I think there's, it's going to be really interesting to see the way it proliferates and how people use it. But I think the best people who are using it are going to be very, uh, very guided using it as a tool rather than trying to make it do all the all the work for them at this stage. Yeah. Look, I, I think you're probably right. Um, with this kind of stuff, I'm I'm very aware of it and I try to like stay on top of it, but I also try not to act too much on it as well because it just it just moves so quickly. You know, AI's been kind of on this tipping point for I remember reading lots about it, you know, six years ago, seventy years ago, and it was always just around the corner. Um, but it seems like we've actually created tools that people are are using. So um, now's kind of the time to definitely just stay very, very up to date with it. But maybe just not act is is my is my thoughts. But I love that idea around um, building building chatbots. I wanted to start a business at one point that used experts because I think people want to personalize response for these things and and that's shown in you know look at my youtube videos people that people ask like a million questions that I, that I've answered before so many times which is like understandable they can't go back and look at all of that data but they really just want that personalized answer that support which mentorships offer but it's not as scalable and it costs these people money so i think uh yeah, I think it's going to be really cool if you could create a chatbot with with all of that kind of stuff and um, support people that way. It'd be really great. The other thing that I've, I brought this up on the podcast a few times, but I, I think it's and it's seeing what AI is doing now. It makes me think this is going to be even more of a thing. I think I should try to figure out how to start it where you could you could license your data you could somehow give your ai you could buy an ai call it ai butler and you give it access to all your data all your financial data all your social media data and then have it like advise you on your blind spots have like an ai butler that's like looking out for your best interests even more so than you're even capable of doing i feel like you know sure you sir you shouldn't eat that your your salt rates are too high or whatever like i i think that would be a really interesting one where we could because i think we're going to a place where we're going to have 
have more, I hope, have more control over our data in, in different ways. And even, even ways that you can, you know, your AI butler would be then responsible for monetizing your data to the level that you're allowing it to. But basically, I feel like there'll be some AI agency that we'll all have that will allow us to plug into the AI environment in maybe a more safe way. That's one of my predictions. Yeah, I I agree. I think people have been trying to figure out how to sell data, uh, sell their own data for a very long time, like give power back to the people. And people were saying that Web3 was going to be that solution, but maybe it's a hybrid of AI and Web3. I think the most exciting thing is the health element of, you know, with all of these products like Whoop and stuff like that, there's just so much data to crunch there. And I think um, over time, the the models that they'll be able to build and, and advise around health, you know, all these questions, is a, a vegan diet better? Is the carnivore diet going to kill people? Like people just don't know that. And I think um, that's where the a huge amount of um, advancement will come. And it'll all come to rather than one size fits all. And and the, it'll, it'll come to maybe keto is bad for you, but it's good for me. Maybe it's, you know, veganism is right for my my body. Like you bring about it in health, but it's going to be, I think it'll be everywhere. We'll have our own Spotify AI song spun up for us. We'll have our own video games that tell the story that we want to know. You know, there, there, I think there's that ability for dynamic custom creative to be spun up. I even saw a guy yesterday, he, he took a picture of a screenshot and he got it down to like 0.2 megabytes. So he took a file that was seven megabytes megabytes down to like 20 kilobytes. Then he got AI to render, to punch up the image and it, and it only got up to like half a kilobyte or something. And it looked better than the original. So like the, the implications for something like that, for data storage and how images will be rendered and processed. Like it's just amazing how many, how many axes there are, you know, it implies, you know, that there's going to be rapid changes in. Yeah, that's awesome. I also saw someone that wrote uh, on Twitter, I think it's getting penalized now. Um, Twitter's a small world, so people have probably seen this. But yeah, he wrote a um, a content site with just AI and it was ranking really, really well. It was getting a ton of traffic. So the fact that he got around Google there is pretty, pretty interesting. I'm, I think they'll catch on pretty quickly though. Normally here, you'll hear my announcer voice telling you about one of our partner's great e-commerce SaaS businesses, but today I get to tell you about my thing and invite you to C-Suite Mastermind, Las Vegas, March 23rd and 24th. 2023. In September, we ran our first in-person mastermind in Victoria, British Columbia. It was a smash success and a clear sign to keep bringing together the top minds of our industry for concentrated learning and relationship building events. So now we can all meet up in Las Vegas, March 23rd and 24th, just ahead of Shop Talk. Check out directtoconsumer.co slash events to see the lineup of amazing mentors we're bringing to the table, including the Midday Squares trio, the founders and operators behind Obvi Collagen, Mini Katana, Kuru Footwear, and more. So whether you're building in CPG, health, apparel, or even bladed weaponry, we're going to have the content and connections at C-Suite that make a serious impact to your results in 2023. So that's directtoconsumer.co slash events, Viva Las Vegas, and let's go. I think we can geek out about AI all day, but let's bring it back to ads for a second here. Uh, you mentioned in the pre-interview that Meta has been, Facebook ads has been the major source of growth for probably all your products. What, what's been your, your guiding light on Facebook? What's been, what's been the tactics that, that have worked best this year on, on Facebook ads? I think the main thing is just getting that content feedback loop where the the media buyer and the content team have enough volume going through. There's a, a good amount of insights and I think uh, it's it's been interesting to see how creative testing has evolved it, it's almost like 
our attention has moved onto it simply because we're struggling with things like targeting and interest hacks and creating like a million ad sets like at $1 an ad set. Um, it's kind of all of those hacks have gone away. So now we're like, okay, what can we do? And it's looking at creative testing and it probably should have been that the entire time to be completely honest, but there were optimizations in the previous hacks. I think, um, so yeah, just getting that that framework set up and, and the cadence of meetings with the right people to amplify what we're doing right and then stop doing what we're doing wrong. We've just got a huge volume of creatives as well. We use agency and also in-house shoots and um, we're, because we're spending so much, you know, there is a, probably a bottleneck with our media buyer and the amount we can test um, simply just because we've just got so much content coming through. But um, that's been really successful for us. The other thing is just mixing up where we're sending this traffic, you know, making sure that we've got advertorials, quiz funnels, those kind of things running. Um, whitelisting has been very, very big for us. If you're not doing whitelisting, I think it's a great, great method. Um Whitelisting's interesting. And one of the things that we've tested on the Pilot House side recently is whitelisting from one of our employee accounts, even from like random people's accounts, not even from influencers necessarily. Like, actually, it's one of the things I have to do after this, this podcast is I've got to sign up for a business account because we're going to start running some ads for our newsletter through my personal handle because we think we think we, we might see great results with that. Yeah, we, d- we did that as well. Um because it was too hard, like it was so early to whitelisting, nobody would do it for us. So we're just like, okay, we'll we'll get someone with a big Instagram following that doesn't even have a Facebook, and we just created their Facebook. Um, their name had a bit of pull, and yeah, yeah, it worked really well. So I, I think the limitations of whitelisting don't really exist. Like, you, yeah, as you said, you can create a page, employee page. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's very effective. We like to call it dark posting because it implies that it's not going to show up on the influencer's feed, right? Because I think that's the worry that they don't they that they don't want it to show up on their organic feed and dark posting to me implies that they you know it's just going to go out to to the ad audience. Probably a better name for it, but the truth is I, I swear they still don't even know what it is. It's still so new, which is uh, you know, it's around incentivizing them. And I think there's valid points why they don't want it to happen. Um, I think it can cause ad blindness for their future promotions. Um, but, you know, th- that's why you just need to incentivize them. You can give a percentage of ad spend and then also a, a set up cost. And um, then it's definitely positive sum. What's the what's the best partnership you've put together or, or the OD has put together in terms of, I guess you could it could be influencer, it could be a licensing deal. What's the best partnership that, that's fueled the growth? I think uh, I'll give you both. Um, Mitch Orville and Chloe Zepp, they're Australian influencers. Um, Chloe Zepp's got her own uh, clothing line, but she's got also got, they, they created like a, a funny channel uh, Mitch did w- called Angry Dad, which is, it was pranking his dad, millions of views, big YouTube following. I think that when there's someone that is very likable with a good YouTube channel and then the method of growth of their Instagram has been their YouTube, which is the most powerful emotional connecting platform there is. They're generally going to be the best partnerships that you can have um, just because the followers are just so connected. Um, so that's probably one of our best best ones. Um, and then Disney is probably the other one. Disney have so many assets. I think if you can get Disney for your brand, um, it's probably the only license you'll need for two, three years. Um, if you're, you know, versatile, like the Udi 
is just because they've got, you know, they've got so many things. They've got Star Wars. They've got Marvel. Yeah, Marvel. They've got, yeah, so many. And they've got all of, like, the vintage stuff, Winnie the Pooh, um, all of the recent stuff as well. Uh, they've got Pixar. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty extensive. Did they come to you or did you seek them out? I think they came to us, actually. Um, I think they came to us. I, I, I can't remember. It was either Warner Brothers or Disney, but one of those came to us. And how does how does it work at a high level? Are you, with licensing? Are you are you paying for the license and then you're earning it back on arbitrage, or is it like a rev share as you sell? It's a rev share, so they take um, what depending on licensing. Generally, um, a license couldn't cost you know five to to twelve percent, depending on what it is of revenue. Oh, cool. And then I wanted to ask, you've built this empire of all these different brands. I think you, you said it was five current brands that you're currently operating. What's been your best hire in your e-commerce empire that you've made in the past year? As in p- people hire? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, hiring my um, COO, you know, we were sold out two years in a row, probably lost 40 to $80 million revenue, like during our Christmas period where Udi is supposed to thrive in the, the Northern Hemisphere. So, yeah, she came in and she was uh, – she had merchandise planning background, which was really a, uh, a weak spot for me. So she built all of our inventory models and, and those kind of things. And um, since then, you know, she's been promoted into our CEO. Um, so she's now running the company, uh, which is great. Uh, you know, a, a bit more traditional background, which I think a lot of people hearing this might be hesitant, um, but I think the CEO's position is is really around setting the vision, being commercially savvy, and just yeah, just being very business minded, um, and just being a great leader as well. And and uh, she ticks all of those boxes, so that's going really well at this stage. Um, yeah, I think that's the best I. I saw a post. I don't know if this is if this is accurate. Three months ago, where you said that is this Belinda Barlow. Yeah, she's been in charge. Yeah, about four four months now. How's that transition gone? Has it been has it been great for you? It's been good. We've had um, a bit of chaos uh, with a certain region, so uh, we've I can't be public about what the chaos was just yet. I probably will tweet something about it soon. Um, so we were in crisis management mode for. October, which we have been for the past three years, unfortunately. But yeah, so that was a real test. It was kind of trial by fire, thrown in the deep end. So I've still been quite involved because of that crisis and managing it. Um, And, you know, we managed to get through the crisis and and have, you know, our best, I think we're like 100% up on on last year or 150% up on last year for November, December. So that's a pretty, pretty good result. Uh, and it's maybe free, maybe when you get out of this, it'll free you up for even more thought leadership, which is something I see you doing really well across LinkedIn and Twitter. What's been your your philosophy with with putting thought leadership out there? What's the reason you're doing it and how's it gone? Yeah, I think it started probably from a more of a selfish point of view. Like I wanted to just attract talent, um, get deal flow. I think, you know, it's a very against my nature. I'm super introverted. And it is quite hard for me to contextualize my thoughts, which, it, you know, I kind of also throw myself into the reason that that was kind of the reason why I wanted to do it. I was like, I need to be able to deal with this. So I, again, trial by fire, threw myself into it. Um, 
but it's become a bit more than that. I think it's just a, it's a really rewarding thing. I meet lots of people. I'm able to help lots of people as well. Um, give back, you know, it's by no means a money-making activity, um, especially not right now. Um, so yeah, it's just good, good fun and meeting lots of people. Do you do it yourself or have you allocated any resources to helping you with it? So my YouTube team, I've got two video editors. One does vertical format, one does the YouTube. Um, I do now have a script writer that's more like just researches things and gives me some alternative points like history and stuff like that that I wouldn't know that I need to use to to bring bring my point home. Um, but I'm I'm thinking about actually expanding quite deep in the team, like creating, getting an animator, like proper. Um, animator to really create a lot of these points, maybe even getting uh, someone that's really ingrained in the e-commerce culture and business culture as well to really get their experiences and maybe even launch a podcast as well of, of sorts. So yeah, just I'm either, I'm at this inflection point where I can either double down and, and really invest in it, which I think is a huge opportunity, but at the same time, it's always going to require me if it's my personal brand, which is a bit of a risk itself. Um, so I, I need to be quite sure that I want to do that because I'll be committing to it for the next three years. But having that help, having being able to just, you know, once you get the formula down, being able to just film it yourself, fire it off to a video editor, that makes just such a big difference. I know a lot of founders that are, that do it themselves that that'll, and, and I, and they, they make it a big priority of their time, but I'm always, I think it's, I think it's very valuable that, that you do this, but I think it's also important that you insulate it with help so that you're not slaving over it in a way. Um, YouTube is such an interesting opportunity. We talk about YouTube shorts on the channel all the time and our YouTube channel, it's funny, like we do really well with this podcast, but our YouTube channel is very much kind of an afterthought. We throw our videos up there. And I've had some people kind of look at it recently and it's, it's really because we're just, we're not positioning in the right way. We're really neat when you're on YouTube, you really, I feel like need to be solving people's problems and being very clear about how watching this video is going to solve a problem that they have. How do you think about YouTube in order to get maximum views? It, it's great because it can just be an SEO play. So what you're talking about there, I think my first million do this. I think they, they phrase a lot of their stuff around an SEO play, um, and that's very easy to rank for things like influencer marketing process. Like that, that keyword is easy to capture. Um, the there is the other end of the spectrum, which is the Mr. Beast end of the spectrum, which is just a formula of click through rate and then also view duration, like the retention element as well. How long are you getting people to stay there? And they're generally where I'm pushing towards. You, you can look at my YouTube and you can see the depth of um, tutorial views, which is great. Um, but there are a lot of people that did a lot of tutorials that just have no emotional connection with that audience anymore. Um, and you can see that they've just kind of fatigued. And I think I'm trying to kind of avoid that and build something that's a little bit more entertaining as well as insightful. Um, so yeah, I think Alex Mose is doing it best, to be completely honest. Um, he's got both, you know, he's, he, he would have SEO, but he would also have just people coming just to hear whatever he has to say. And I think that that's um, quite good. He's just a great communicator as well, like just really, um, really clear around his concepts. And I think that they're quite original concepts as well. You mentioned SaaS off the start, and and I think you you tease a little bit that you're 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 thinking about it in terms of uh, ways that that people can help find trends, validate trends. Can you talk a little bit about your vision for SaaS? Yeah, so Trend Rocket specifically, I think um, there are some tools out there that um, look at social media platforms and and what's trending. I think when you combine a lot of the concepts, such as reviews on Trustpilot, like 
is the product successful at, at achieving what it's marketed towards, you know, the review velocity that they're getting as well, then looking at their Facebook likes growth, an indication of something like their, their Facebook ads, um, you know, their ability to spend on media, um, their unique ad creation as well, like how aggressive are they being on Facebook ads, and then comparing that to like the market for, let's say it's weighted blanket, for example. First, you need to look at the supply side. So you need to understand the cost per unit and then you need to understand the market positioning, so a pricing matrix of weighted blankets in that area. Um, and then you can actually look at their contribution margin. And once you know their contribution margin, then you can look at things like their, their ability to spend on Facebook ads and you can kind of work out their profit per unit. Um, so that's what I'm kind of working towards. And then I'm also just trying to get it in real time. So when a new trend pops up in a certain region, let's say Germany, you can kind of compare that trend globally and, and see where there's opportunities. So that's the holy grail of of research process. That's how I've come up with, you know, some products in the past that it, that do very, very well. Um, but it is very, very hard to get that, that real-time data and, and scale that appropriately without lots of people touching it. So that's that's the challenge. That's why nobody's done it to this point. Um, but I, th- I think we'll get there by, you know, mi- middle of the year, next year, which should be good. And this could work for both new products and also potential themes within the UDI or, or your other products potentially, whether it's what you print on it or where yeah. you target. Yeah, definitely new themes as well. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities um, with with a product like that. Very cool. So here's so here's my question. If we were to give you $50,000 to spend on uh, marketing and in, in, you got to spend it in, let's say, January mm-hmm. uh, for the UDI, where would you be deploying those funds currently, do you think? I'll give you a different answer rather than just saying I'd spend it all on Facebook. Um, I would start your own media channel. I'd start your own YouTube. I would um, build a quick studio, either do podcast format and try to get it to trend on reels, or I would do something like an unboxing channel for a unique audience, like get like a couple of kids or something like that that are super funny and charismatic and and do a ton of unboxings and just pump that through YouTube and organic and and see what you can do. See if you can build your own, you know, Barstool Sports for unboxing or or something like that. I think that there's huge opportunities through organic and self-owned media at this stage, especially if you can kind of build it as a a, a brand in itself can even become its own product. It's interesting. Yeah, we, we just did the podcast with Mini Katana there, and they're they're pushing for a billion monthly impressions on their sword and anime channels and stuff. When you think about media, would you think about doing something that sort of connect? When I was talking to Isaac from Mini Katana, he views his media channels, he calls it the circle of manliness. So it's like <laughs> anime, samurai swords, there's like outdoor sports. He sort of has this whole like jobs to be done circle that his media companies will be able to, you know, become the distribution channel for. When you think about media, are you thinking about it in terms of just what you think people are going to want to watch or are you also trying to build a, a circle of coziness with uh with your products mm. yeah i think that it's very it needs you need to be very clear on what the purpose is behind this channel because otherwise it can just kind of fade away like if you want to get sales then it can't just be about impressions it needs to be around creating sales and therefore there needs to be a strong emotional connection to the talent behind it or it needs to highly uh get impressions for the product itself, which kind of sounds like the mini Quintana example there. So I think you'd need to be clear on that. Mine would probably be around just getting impressions um, for for the 
the channel itself and growing that just because once I own those media channels, I can kind of share them across a lot of a lot of our brands, even though our brands are really in different verticals, I still think it would be important. Um, I'm building a couple of faceless channels at the moment just to, to really understand how, how much that can scale. And I think when there's a broader product like Outdoor Play, you can just do reviews um, and really rank for those reviews, especially if there's search intent for the brands that you're already selling. Um, but that's a unique business model as well. And then what are you, what are you thinking with your, with your portfolio brands here? What do you, are, do you want to exit? Are you, are you hoping for a big exit with DOD? What, what are you planning for in that regard? I'm considering an exit. I think, you know, I, it's, it's a highly profitable brand and I, I'm, I'm kind of open to, to receiving offers, but at the same time, it would need to be the right buyer. I, I still love the brand. I'm still happy to be involved, especially in the capacity that I am now. So yeah, just kind of winging that. My goal is to just create cash flow. I, I think that that's all I I really care about at this point um, and also just not be tied to anything in in like, and that's, you know, coming back to the YouTube example, I know it's creating a lot of value, but I don't, I don't want to be tied to anything. I want to be able to kind of just do whatever I want to do um, and just keep learning as well. So that's as long as, you know, it's it's not too much work, I would sell it, but not, not in any huge rush that is. What's your favorite thing to do with cash flow? Like how does that benefit your life? Obviously it does, but what in your specific case? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't buy fancy cars or houses. I don't really, uh, I don't really spend any money on clothes as well. I, I'm not a flashy person in that regard. So some could argue that money doesn't help my life. <laughs> it actually doesn't help in any money. Uh, but I think what it does buy is, is um, you know, future freedom uh, as well. And also it allows me to buy more businesses, which um, I, I do enjoy doing. Like I enjoy learning, like I enjoy entering new spaces. If I was probably wanted, um, you know, just short-term cash flow, I'd just keep investing in e-commerce and keep growing brands that way. But, you know, I'm willing to go into a space where I don't know as much and probably lose a little bit of money in the very short term, just for the long term, just so I can learn and, and enter new circles as well and become more confident. So it's just a method of, of learning. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not as, I'm not working my 14-hour days uh, at the moment. I'm you know, since I've stepped down as a CEO. So whether I fire up again next year and, and start really focusing on that um, will be interesting. What's one business you that you've done that you won't be eager to go back into? Just direct response, uh, direct to consumer e-commerce, to be completely honest. Like I would need to be a strong brand with a, um, and going into wholesale and retail, I think. Um, if anyone, you know, is just doing it's okay if you like you're just trying to produce you know one two million dollars a year for direct to consumer e-commerce, but it's just this huge risk that all of these retailers are just going to annihilate you. So um, that's what I'll I'll definitely be avoiding. Um, I have you know I've started a Vietnamese roll store as well. Like so hospitality, I would stay very very clear away from restaurants and that kind of stuff as well. I, I don't think I I have the discipline for for costs to do that. And um, I think I've done done enough of that for my life at this point. One thing we talked about in the pre-interview, because I just am so impressed that you've gotten as big as you have, you know, nearly half a billion without any retail presence. When this product is so also so suited to being a, an eye catcher on a shelf, does that have to do with that worry that if you did it, they would undercut you? They would like learn the product sold and make their own cheaper version or something? 
I think they're going to do that anyway. Um, I think by getting into their stores and, and reducing the amount of shelf space that they have for the product category is more effective than, you know, I don't think you're giving these people a read on the, the product because they're going to get the read anyway. Um, so I think it's better to be working with them than against them. Um, the main key arguments, if you wanted to steal man both sides, is that one, you're going to lose, uh, you're going to compress margin and you're not getting the customer data. And then two, um, these people can be very, very difficult to deal with as well. So I think that they're kind of the main arguments. And then there's also the attribution issues as well, like what, what marketing is effective. But um, I still think it's worth it. I've learned my lesson. I, you know, I'm looking at things like FAIR as well, F-A-I-R-E. They um, seem to be a good solution, high fees, but um, they, they're a good solution for these smaller brands to kind of dabble into into the wholesale space. The problem is it's a it's another whole um, team dynamic, like wholesale and retail is, is very, very different. But, you know, the, the Udi, to your point, We've got all these licenses and these new drops that if a retailer can get exclusivity with, they're gonna they're gonna bring in a lot of people. So I, I think that we we have a lot to offer to these retailers um, and we'll we'll price accordingly. Are drops a big part of the business model? Like uh, like the scarcity around drops? Yeah, it's not scarcity so much. Um, we haven't had the ability to unlock the scarcity element because forecasting is just so difficult. We would have left so much on the table if we we went with scarcity. There's been a natural scarcity just because we've been so bad at demand planning. <laughs> so they they keep selling out. So people kind of act upon that accordingly. But yeah, it it it's getting better. Um, and we've got to decide whether we do, you know, two three month drops or we bring some around for six months. I'm I'm not not really sure. You know, we've got Pokemon launching next month, so I'm, I'm we're we're still not 100 percent sure if that's going to be a two or six month drop. To be honest. Well, I'm just lining up which Udi is going to best suit my personality. Do you have a Do you have a favorite Udi that you own? Well, you've got a you got a dog painting in the background. What, yeah, what I got, I, yeah, I could get a Wheaton. Is that a Grudel? Wheaton, he's a he's a, a Wheaton Terrier poodle. You got any like poodle cross? We've got Grudels coming. Got Grudels coming next next month. It looks looks very similar to that. So we'll we'll sort you out with one. Oh, perfect. Oh, Charlie's gonna love that. That's amazing. If people want to follow your journey, where do you recommend they do that? Twitter, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube probably is best best spot. Twitter or YouTube, look up Davey Fogarty. We will add your links onto the show notes here. This was a lot of fun, man. And I know you said you're not you're not big on public speaking, but I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna send you some invites to our, our 2023 events because I think you'd be you'd be a lot of fun there. That sounds good. Nice. Thanks, brother. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at direct to consumer all one word dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.